Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you want. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. For our guest this week, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome back to Kermode on Film the brilliant Neil Brand. Neil, how are you? Where are you? Because obviously we're still doing this virtually. Where are you? I'm in southeast London, uh, leafy Nunhead, where I live. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it, I've got used to it now. I don't mind being banged up. If the zombie apocalypse now comes, this house is my universe. <laughs> So are you in, I can see around you, well, Kipple, I think is the way, is what I can see around you. Are you in, are you, are you in a library or a recording studio or what? This is my office, which uh, looks slightly more uh, impressive than it actually is. It's a kind of a, uh, it was laughingly sold to us as a third bedroom. But if you put a bed in here, you couldn't actually get in. So it's a small room, but I've put my books along behind. I've got my ship up there which, for anybody who's interested, is actually pretty close to the ship that uh, Clara Bow jumps off at the end of it. It's a wow. 1920s steam launch, Just for which those, I found... For, for those who can't see the pictures, when you say, I have my ship, I wish to point out this is a model ship. You're not gesturing to an actual <laughs> ship. Behind you, there is a model yeah. ship that's like, is that two or three foot long or something? Yeah, it's about three feet long. It uh, was obviously built by an enthusiast, so it's got all the lines of a 20s yacht it's a steam yacht it's got a big front on the center it's got a nice kind of canopied front bit and it's basically a sort of a luxury yacht from the from the 1920s that in it clara bow gets off with this rich lad who takes him on her boat and she ends up jumping off it in order to win his love and i saw it in a shop and it was like oh wow that's amazing and i think if you wanted to you could put a motor in it and actually float it out on a lake but uh, i just wanted to sit at the back of my of my wall there as some kind of faded sense of luxury which you is, have to get which you have to get a little a little animatronic model of clara bow on a piece <laughs> of string so that when it was out on the lake could just, just uh, do the little absolutely <laughs> maybe something to make the eyelids eyelashes going as well now, in the past, Neil, you've recorded stuff for for me and for friends of mine. Is that the room in which you've... Like, we've sort of sent you a thing saying, Neil, we're making a programme, because it, for those who don't know, although how you couldn't know, considering how much we've tweeted it, all the secrets of cinema programmes, the, the musical accompaniment has been done by Neil. And the way this would work was we'd go, Neil, we are doing a programme about spy movies. And Neil would go, give me five minutes. And then you'd come back <laughs> with all these with all these incredibly elaborate and complicated cues. Are you in the room that you do that in? I am. I am. So the room goes off that 
this way. So I'm where I'm sitting at the moment, I've got a wall about two feet behind me. It goes about six more feet down there, and I have a keyboard with a computer set up and all sorts of instrumentation inside the digital box of that, and I produce my stuff from there. But I've got to say, Mark, the reason why I just love doing Secrets of Cinema is this is probably the only time I will get asked to score a spy movie or score a <laughs> horror movie or score a romance or whatever. <laughs> so I'm treating every single one as if I was. this was going to be, you know, going up there onto a big screen. Well, the great news, of course, is that we, we're we making three more now. So, you know, we've Very done... Good. You know, we've done, uh, you know, rom-coms and disaster movies and Christmas movies and everything. So we're doing three more at the moment, which you are going to have to provide the music for. I don't think it's giving anything away to to uh, to let the audience know what they are. So we're doing one on pop on pop movies, which right. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what you come up with that, um, mm. you know. And uh, then we're doing one on British comedy. Now, that is a hard one. <laughs> to find the theme of British comedy. That's, that, I think that's a difficult one. And yeah. then something which I think you're going to have fun with is cult movies. And Neil, all I can say right now is if you don't put a theremin in there, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> Only if you play it, Mark. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can, you know, I can, I, I'm sure if you, you provide me a perfect track, I can, as you know, I have three theremin, theremai, theremini. Good. Whatever the plural, it's like, it's like panu, panu. I have three theremu yeah. to, to which to which I can turn. If you have something that needs a kind of, <laughs> that's very sweet. Well, I have, I do have one digital theremus which I will use if I absolutely have to. But otherwise, I'll, I'll definitely come to you. And just sorry, briefly before we start talking about the thing that we're actually meant to be talking about, mm. when when you do that, because one of the things that I love about Secrets of Cinema is that we actually do have original music composed for us by you. I mean, it's, it's, I've always thought it's, you know, it's a sort of defining thing. If you're going to make a program, it wants to have original music. And I remember when we were first talking about it and we said to you, I think, you know, in the first series, it was rom-coms coming of age, heist movies. And uh, I thought, I have no idea how you begin this. And we just went here and you went, yeah, it's fine. Absolutely fine. And then you went. So, I mean, how do how do you do it? Do you listen to material? Is it is it just kind of in the Neil Brand head? I know what a rom com sounds like. I know what a heist film sounds like. I think that's exactly it. I have wanted to score these kinds of movies all my life. I got into being a silent film pianist because I wanted to become a composer. Mm. And I thought this might be a way to do it, and it was. As it transpired, yeah, it actually <laughs> did make a big difference. But yeah, when when I when I think. And it's funny, this is where the main titles come from as well. It, uh, the, one of those first ones, I think it was the heist movies. Yeah. Something in that I just thought, oh, yeah. And do you know that? Yes. Seriously, I know this is sounds like so much BS, but it's absolutely not true. I was walking back from delivering my boy to school, and that hit my head as I was walking home. And I walked straight into the house and just recorded. With that odd time signature, I kid you not. So uh, seriously, it is. It's ninety percent um, you know, perspiration. Uh, the ten percent of inspiration is the movies I've loved, and then it's just putting it together so it doesn't sound naff. And I think that's <laughs> that's the biggest job I have is to try and come up with something that really doesn't sound like I've cooked it up here, but actually yeah. does sound like some people have got in a room together. Well, this is, this, is, this is the reason why looking at you, I mean, although it's on Zoom, why looking at you in that room full of, let's be honest, Kipple, um, is so brilliant <laughs> because that's not what those things sound like. Um, it was, um, 
somebody I'm very close to made a short film a while ago and they, they wanted to record it. They needed a version of um, uh, My Melancholy Baby. And you came back with a version of it which had like, you know, piano and, and all the rest of it. I went, when did Neil do that? And this person said, oh, just like this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a plus. They then sent you notes on how to change it and you did. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, I think anyone who's done composing work in anger knows that notes are they're part of the part of the fabric. And actually answering notes is part of the fabric as well. So actually sending something back that is what it turns out they wanted is fantastic because mm-hmm. that means then the negotiation has has worked. Yeah. But the, there's another element to this. Uh, forgive me, we will get on to Buster. We will get on to Buster but... Keaton in a little bit. <laughs> but there's one other element to all this, which is that the tech has improved so much for us keyboard players since I first bought my first synth back in the late 1970s, early 80s, that now pretty much every sound is at your fingertips if you know how to use it. Right. So when I got a pack called Swing, which was a full-size big bag, if you want, you can press a button and it will do that. But I don't want to do that. I want to do my own stuff and put a big band behind it. So I've spent a lot of lockdown going through my sounds and finding out how that works and how that works. So with the result that I'm going to put out an album now of called Piano Dreams, Fantastic. which is piano led, but has... It's got a number that will turn into a jazz number. It's got a number that will turn into a piece of film music. It's got a number that will turn into a string quartet with piano. It's Each one goes off to these different places, and it's all because I've been hearing these wonderful sounds coming back and learning how to try and make them work. That thing about uh, synthesizers in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was in the 80s in Manchester, I remember going to a recording studio that had a DX7 and we i mean you know we'd never seen a dx7 we couldn't believe it it was like a spaceship had arrived from it was like a dx7 and it had all these sounds on it and they didn't sound like what they were meant to they said like it's got trumpets and it went and and it's got um it's got violin but which is it was it was amazing but what i remember was literally 2 years later going back to that same studio and i'm not making this up the DX7 was on the floor with cigarettes stubbed out on it because it had been superseded so massively in the two years that it this thing that was like, you know, the mothership from Close Encounters had turned into literally an ashtray in the space of two years. Yeah, it was that quick. Uh, I can remember it going from uh, a single sound source so you pressed a note you got one sound press another note nothing happened <laughs> to a two sound source where you press two notes and you got two different notes but pressing the other note nothing happened so the first polyphonic which i if i remember rightly was my was the polymoog or it was some other where you could actually play a whole chord and that was like wow that was breakthrough time that was wow. year zero Wow. We should say also, for those who don't know, again, how could you not? Because I go on about it so much. You and I have played together a lot. Uh, we accompany silent movies, um, the band that I'm in, the Dodge Brothers, and you leading on the piano. And this happened because you you started, um, You, you obviously you've been accompanying silent movies on the piano for years, but you started wanting to do it with a band. And you kind of taught us how to do it. It's become one of the great joys of my life is playing along to silent movies. And we, we're here nominally now to talk about Buster Keaton because um, 
his birthday coming up, 125th birthday coming up, and the Peter Bogdanovich documentary about Buster Keaton has recently come out. And you, of course, have uh, played scores for Keaton's film. So firstly, mm. tell me why. Just imagine that the, the, a listener who doesn't know much about Buster Keaton, maybe they've seen The General. Maybe mm. they've... Why is he important? He's important because to some of us, he is the single funniest thing to come out of the silent comedy world. And I think he's the only one who genuinely managed to create comedy that was so utterly timeless that it doesn't matter that 100 years has gone by since the films and 125 years since he was born because the comedy is exactly as it was then. It's as funny, it does the same things, it sends the same signals. Now, I don't think you can say that about anybody else, and I'm sorry, Chaplin fans. I think Chaplin's wonderful. Sorry, Harold Lloyd fans. Sorry, even Laurel and Hardy fans. And I stand to, behind nobody in my love for Laurel and Hardy. But Keaton is, as far as I'm concerned, the Michelangelo of silent film. He is... He's the Beatles. He is absolutely the most impressively creative, unexpected, and hard-working silent film comic to take us into a world that we find utterly unexpected and completely hilarious. Buster Keaton is uh, the essence of movies. A lot of my daring came from Keaton. He was born to be a silent movie comedian. By the time he was four years old, little Joe Frank Keaton had actually become a star in vaudeville, the youngest ever. The man said I was a big comedian and I was going to get a big contract. Buster finally gets his longtime wish fulfilled and he starts to make his own feature films. He is one of the inventors of cinema. It's magic. <laughs> perfect storm follows. Buster is drinking too much. His marriage is falling apart. He blamed himself. He just lost his heart there. He could have been killed. He was feeling so down that he didn't care. Everything he had achieved was forgotten. For Keaton, cinema was important. It was jokes that worked because of the movie camera. How he did that was superhuman. There were no tricks. He just did it. It's amazing how timeless he is and how that type of physical comedy will never be unfunny. How many filmmakers can you say that about? The thing that's most remarkable about watching the Bogdanovich documentary, which pretty much does his whole career, but does it in a kind of a strange loop structure, so that we end with the famous uh, features, because what Bogdanovich didn't want to do was to make a film which started with the shorts, went through the features, and then had this kind of gradual decline. So we end with the Venice Film Festival, Keaton being celebrated as a master, because apparently people had forgotten, and then talking about you know the great 10 films. But what's yeah. remarkable about uh, the doc is just how physical i mean at one point we have quentin tarantino talking about them as action movies 
And mm. tell us about that physicality, because there are things that Keaton is doing. There's a scene which Bogdanovich uses of a car going past and Keaton grabbing the car as it goes past. And mm. any other human being, it would have pulled their arm out of its socket. And yeah. yet he makes it seem like he's light as a feather. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because it starts small. Buster Keaton started life as the boy in his family vaudeville troupe. At the age of four, he was on stage and he was taking falls already. His dad was throwing to his mum. His mum was throwing to his dad. He was being chucked around. But he was also aware that all the laughs he was getting were about his reaction to being chucked around. So as he grew up, he understood two things. One was that potentially getting hurt but not looking like you're getting hurt was very funny. And the other was that his physicality would be the key to everything he did. So he was a phenomenally fit, lithe, brilliant, acrobatic, physical performer long before he got in front of the in front of the camera. So then working out from that, he decides that he is going to make stunts. But those stunts involving his own body are never just going to be there for the heck of it. He's never just going to fall over. He's never just going to trip over something or just fall down a hole. Every stunt will have a particular reason why it's there. There'll be a build-up. There'll be a context. So, for instance, the famous stunt in which he is standing in front of the falling building and the building comes down and he's in the window. Rather than being crushed to death, he's still standing there amidst the debris. That comes as part of an absolutely massive sequence, which he's already planned out and shot of a storm hitting a town and literally destroying the buildings in the town. And that is part of a bigger story about his father having a paddle steamer on the river and he trying to make his father say that he likes him, that he loves him, that he's doing a good job. So that isn't just a stunt out of nowhere. That's a stunt which has got a whole world of living behind it. And I think the most important thing about these these wonderful moments in Keaton films, and I include the one where he's, he's literally running away from as many policemen as you could fit into a film prime, uh, frame you know the best part what looks like about 150 policemen is probably yeah. not they're chasing him down a tiny little alleyway very narrow he's come out onto the street he's looking back the first six of them are at the end of the alleyway they're about to jump on him he grabs hold literally of a passing car which must be doing even given the camera angle at least 20 possibly 25 miles an hour maybe more grabs on it as it goes and it literally jerks him off the ground and out of shot. Out of three. And his, his, his body is horizontal when he goes. Now, again, he must have been able to do that. He must have been able to know he could do that. But he didn't waste it on, oh, I'm standing by the road here. I'm going to grab this car. He used it to make one of the massive high points in a chase in which you get stunt after stunt after stunt after stunt. He was very good at taking a situation and thinking, right, what could happen? during this and one of the most telling pieces in the Bogdanovich film is many many years later when he's making almost his last film a film called the rail rodder which he made for canadian national this was long after he had been sort of forgotten lost abandoned then sort of rediscovered particularly by the french and then his films finally rediscovered because would you believe james mason had bought his house and found buster's movies in the cellar of the house and got those out so that they could be seen by the rest of the world. And Buster had been asked to make this, this thing where he crosses Canada from one side to the other. And the director won't let him do a particular stunt where he's sitting on this little sort of railway tractor. Yeah. 
and he's got a map, but the map has blown back in his face. And as he's fighting this map to try and get, see where he's going, the train crosses this unbelievably high bridge. And the director and I think his wife are saying, you can't do that. You can't you do, cannot it, yeah. do that. You absolutely can't do that. And Buster's incensed. And you see him there playing cards, still you know, really beaten up about this. And he says, look, it's not difficult. It's not dangerous. It's child's play. And I, I could do that stunt. And you just found yourself going, if only I could have seen you do that stunt. And I think his life, and the, the Bogdanovich film brings it out very well, was plagued by people saying, you can't do that. Except for the first 10 years he was working when no one could say, you can't do that. And so he just went ahead and did it. Damn great big bridge. We combined the two gags, the same thing. I don't know. I put my brogue down, everything else, and I wonder where I am. Out with the map. And once I get it spread, I'm helpless. Well, now, if you're shot going across that brussel, it's all a funny. I'm chasing them, but fighting a paper at the same time. The director has decided against Buster's idea. Instead of being wrapped up in a map, Keaton crosses the bridge doing his laundry. What happened? Uh, didn't he tell you what he was going to do? No, I didn't know. He shifted gags on me. Don't forget, there's still two other shots to complete the sequence, Buster. There's a long shot of the bridge with them going over. That's the, that's the whole centre of the gag, is that long shot of the bridge. No, no the, bridge, the bridge is not your gag. The bridge is only suspense. A thrill. There's no gag to the bridge at all. It's only a dangerous place to be when there's, there might be a collision. That's the only thing that's, that's funny. Well, I know the main reason they didn't want you going over the trestle with all wrapped up in newspapers and things. Said it was too dangerous. I said, who suggested the games? I you did. I said, I generally know what I'm doing. When I was writing about um, the evolution of uh, preview screenings in a, in a book that I wrote many years ago, I refer to um, the, the story, which is again is in the Bogdanovich, it's fairly well known of Buster Keaton shooting a scene of him running down a hill. He's running away from, you know, from the women and he runs down a hill and th these rocks start funny and he looks at the shot and he realises that what's funny about the shot is that he's dislodged some small rocks. And Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Those are getting the laughs. So he goes back and he turns that into the gag. So the rocks get bigger and bigger until finally he's being pursued by a rock which is bigger than him, like a boulder. <laughs> but what's fascinating about that is there is a general, you know, nowadays there is a sniffiness about, uh, oh, you know, people test screen things and they look at... 
what Keaton was doing was actually the precursor of what then became the laughometer in Prescott of looking at something after you've done it and going, okay, that's not funny, but that is funny. So let's do more of that. Yeah. Um, that is, that's I, very innovative, isn't it? It totally is. And I can imagine <clears throat> at that time, particularly all of the comics were in competition with each other. If Chaplin did a thrill comedy, immediately someone else had to do a thrill comedy. When Harold Lloyd made Safety Last, Keaton immediately went, oh, I've got to do something that tops that. Chaplin went, oh, I've got to do something that tops that. So he made, um, uh, the, um, yeah, Gold Rush. But also, I think they were all looking at each other's films and saying, oh, yeah, that was great. Or, you know, or they could have done that gag better or that gag could have meant more. So Keaton watching himself on screen is watching with the eyes of other comics who are kind of going, yeah, I could do better than that. You know, they're all, they're all pushing each other. It's a fantastic photo of Chaplin, Keaton and Harold Lloyd all sitting stripped to the waist in a sauna together <laughs> with about eight other guys. And you just think, oh, that's fantastic. If there was one conversation I could have earwigged throughout the whole of history, that's, that's the one. Because the idea of testing your comedy it's a little bit like out-of-town tryouts for theatre musicals. Yeah. It ain't going to work till it's in front of an audience, and you're not going to know until it's in front of an audience. Once they're there, that animal is going to give you its response to what you're doing. And it really <laughs> makes you wish a few more films were tried out, that are comedies particularly. You know, I mean, I think there's... It, I, I take your point about whether or not I, th I think he was pretty innovative in doing public sort of comedies like that and also pretty courageous as well i mean it's it's very it's very quick for a movie to get bad word of mouth even in hollywood in 1926 if somebody sits and watches a film and goes i don't know and i think i'm right in saying that not only was that incredibly influential that that particular viewing because of finding a whole sequence that then makes the film. I think it was also a last ditch attempt to save the film because the movie had been sort of foisted on him a bit. It was a Broadway hit called Seven Chances. It took quite a funny idea about a young man who has got to be married by four o'clock that afternoon in order to inherit millions. So advertises in the paper for a wife and gets which is great. And gets, exactly. But it's also a play from about 1912. So although Buster had done all he could with it, and it is quite a funny film, until you hit that rock sequence, it absolutely isn't a classic. And then mm. after that, uh, I'd be interested to know how much more money and how many more days filming they spent to actually get that one extra sequence, because it's a big sequence. That's several days, big rocks. They'd have had to get them up the hill. <laughs> they then have had to work. You know, the, once you get into the... The logistics of it all that was a massive massive extra to bug on the end of a film supposedly after it was finished the following year 1925 buster made a picture with subject matter he wasn't particularly interested in but joe skank had bought the stage play for keaton to film and buster felt obliged to give it his best shot the picture seven chances isn't one of his finest but it does contain one of buster's most extraordinary creations the one with thousands of women chasing him and then an avalanche Here's a little more of that amazing sequence.
Now you talk about the, you know that beast, the audience, and obviously when it comes to comedy, it, it, if the audience doesn't react, it's not working. That's it. I mean, comedy is one of the very few genres in which there is a yes or no as to whether it's working. If they're not laughing, it's not funny, and therefore it doesn't work. Now you've played along to uh, movies live, and I've seen you play the audience. I've seen you react to the audience will pick up on something and then you pick it up, whether it's a like a fairly serious film like Beggars of Life, which we've done many times, or, you know, one of the shorts that are that are more comedic. You are able to react not only to the film, right, but to what the audience are getting out of the film as you do it. Tell us about that, because I still think that's like alchemy and I think that probably you're a wizard and, you know, in another <laughs> life would have been burnt at the stake. Because I don't know how you do it. I don't know how that works. I think what it comes down to is that when you get a kind of stab of excitement off an audience and you can hear a lot of vocalizing from an audience, even when you've got your back to them sitting at a piano, when you get that stab of excitement, that immediately stabs you to go do something a bit more exciting. Right. So if the audience goes, ah, oh, love that, whoa, you then build the music a little bit more. It's a bit more fast, a little bit more busy, maybe something a bit bigger unless it's such a fantastic gag that you know you can't top it. And there's a wonderful moment in a Harold Lloyd film, in fact, in Safety Last, about 10 minutes into the film, which is the kind of, it's last chance saloon. If you don't get a laugh at this point, you know the whole movie's not going to get a laugh from the audience. <laughs> it's where he and a mate are in a room and the landlady has come for the rent and she knocks on the door and there's two coats hanging behind the door. And the two of them look at each other, jump up, climb under their coats, lift their legs up, and she walks straight into the room and there's nobody in the room. Now, it's kind of beautiful. It's done better than I, I explain it. <laughs> I have to say, with Keaton, I've never had that thing of it's not going to get a laugh. With Keaton, I find Keaton very, very, very difficult to play and very, very, very difficult to score. Partially, it's because he's so good, he doesn't need me. <laughs> he doesn't need music. He really doesn't. You can play him absolutely silent and people will still fall about because the, the stuff is so good. It's also because he has a world of his own, which is, I think, an existential world. It's our world, but it's also a world in, in which everything absolutely is out to, get to kill him. It is the paranoid's fantasy. So whatever he does, he knows his life is in danger quite often from second to second. And he makes a lot of movies in which that's the case. And so you have to somehow or other find the sound for that world. Piano is not too bad because piano will fit with pretty much anything. But for the most part, the biggest laughs Keaton can get, I can't make a lot of difference to. And where he's gone into a world in which I just think, what does that sound like? Like in Sherlock Jr. in the Bogdanovich film, in which he actually walks into the screen and becomes part of the mise-en-scene on the screen. So when the screen shot changes, he falls off whatever it was he was on and is sitting in the next shot. Now, that's a sequence only of about, I don't know, a minute and a half, maybe, in which he goes from a garden to a busy street to the top of a mountain to the sea to a snowy landscape. That's a sequence that, from what I remember him saying, Terry Gilliam was influenced to want to become a filmmaker because of that and a lot of Monty Python came out of that whole idea that you didn't have to start and finish a scene one could just crash into the next how are you supposed to help that so I play and I play 
what feels right and I play what the audience is reacting to. And if they're absolutely howling with laughter, I'll take it right back and do next to nothing. If they're a little bit quiet and I think, come on, you could, you could put a bit more into this. I'll just make the music do a little bit more. But either way, Keaton is a challenge and he, he, he has very, very high expectations. What's the uh, what's the Keaton film that you've most enjoyed writing music for? The one that's an absolute. Well, in fact, there are several that are absolute cast iron laugh getters. But I think the general, partially because I love trains, partially <laughs> because I've done it so many times now that I know the timing of even the difficult stuff. Like when a cannon goes off, I've now got that when that's going to happen. <laughs> um, and there is I should one... just say, just say for the casual listener, <clears throat> because as I said, you and I play in a band that, that have accompanied silent films. When we play Beggars of Life, our drummer can now do the gunshots, yes. but that's taken <laughs> that's taken many many runs, hasn't it? It's just <laughs> always astonishes yeah. me that Al gets the gunshots. Um, but he, re- he really is, and funny enough, it is like a muscle memory. You yeah. kind of watch the shot and you think, I think it. There we go. If yeah. you're lucky, it's there. Yeah. But back to the but general. So you, the canon, you can get in there. I can get in there. It is also both the general and the uh, steamboat Bill Junior, the one about his dad and the and the steamship, are full of heart. Not just about comedy, but about living, about being who you are. And in the general, he is supposedly a coward who finds himself having to do the bravest things a man is capable of. In Steamboat Jr., he's a boy who just wants his dad to say, well done. And uh, like a lot of kids of the generation of men, like my dad, that's me. You know, I want to be told that. So I get that Buster is actually doing these things for a reason. And in the general, it means that you can actually pull back to some wonderfully warm music. Um, and it's that, that thing of... Uh, I remember, I think it was Ben Elton one time said, you know, it's serious comedy. There's comedy, and then there's the serious stuff, and what you wind up with if the two are balanced nicely is serious comedy. And that is why I think both The General and Steamboat Bill are, and in fact most of Keaton's stuff. Not the shorts, because he's kind of, he's trying out his toolbox with, with the shorts. He's finding out what he can do. But the end of Sherlock Jr., which isn't in the Bogdanovich film, but I really recommend everybody, just go and watch Sherlock Jr. if you get a chance. The end of it is just beautiful because he's a film projectionist. He's been watching this film. He's lost his girl. The girl comes back and says, I've misunderstood you. I want to be with you. He doesn't know what to do with that. And he looks out through the projection window, and there is the end of the film he's projecting playing out in which the two lovers are coming together. So he just tries to copy what they're doing on the screen. And checks that the girl's going to be all right with having her hand in his hand and then checks that she's going to be all right with a kiss. And then the last shot of the whole film that he's projecting is of the two lovers sitting there with two babies. And you just see Keaton look out the window and scratch his head and that's the end of the film. And that's that's just beautiful. <laughs> Extraordinarily kind of warm and human and all the things aside from his amazing physicality and comedy.
I had a, a weird experience when I was younger. I was a huge Woody Allen fan as a kid, and the first Woody Allens I saw were Sleeper and Love and Death, and yeah. I, I I loved them. It wasn't till some time later that I saw the general and realised that almost the entire battle sequence from Love and Death, all those gags, are from the general. I mean, I know that you know it's it's referring to Eisenstein and all that sort of stuff, but the the, the slaps that he is doing Keaton in in the general, and yeah. what's great about it is, it's it's not even. I mean, it's clearly it's an homage. If you if I if I'd seen the general, I would have known that that's what it was. It's not somebody trying to cover up and claim a gag as their own. It's just like somebody in the nineteen seventies going, "Well, this is the funniest gag ever." So I'm I'm just going to do exactly that again. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's perhaps possible that uh, it you could be a cinema fan now without actually having gone back to watch those Keatons. And when you do, it's astonishing because of how much of what we all know and love is in those films. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. In his own way, you know, he is D.W. Griffith, he is Cecil B. DeMille, he is Von Stroheim. He has created a language with those films he was making in the 20s that has been taken up again and again and again in modern movies. I believe when Pixar were making WALL-E, they showed Buster Keaton films at lunchtime to the crew because the whole point of Wally is that he can't speak. So you have to make character out of body movement. And uh, I thought it was a very good point, actually, in the Bogdanovich film, that he may have a stone face, but his eyes and his facial expression is actually very expressive. Add that to the body language as well, and you get so much off of that. And I very much hope, and I don't know what you make about this, Mark, but I hope if there's one thing this film does do, it does introduce people who don't know Buster to the point where they want to go, right, I want to see these films. Mm -hmm. If it sends them back to look at the whole thing, to check out that movie or this movie or whatever, then job done. Because I don't think you can really entirely understand Buster until you've not just seen the clips from the features, but have actually watched the features because they are usually beautifully constructed stories which happen to have slapstick comedy and usually brilliant gags and utterly and completely impossible gags as part and parcel of their bricks and mortar. I wonder whether, um, I wonder whether the Bogdanovich documentary will bring a new generation to, um, to Keaton. I, I remember the first time you and I met and we had a conversation, we have a, a, a mutual friend and musician, Mike Hammond, who was the person who really kind of got me into Chaplin, because I was oh. always of the, the Gilliam school of thought, which is Chaplin is sentimental and love me, love me, love me. And <laughs> Keaton is try and keep up. And um, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I had always, that was the thing that worked for me. I, I've discovered that I was wrong about Chaplin and I have totally sort of revised my, you know, my opinion. And I know that, you know, you're a huge Chaplin fan as well. But it is funny how people stumble across Keaton. And it's a bit like going down a rabbit hole, isn't it? It's just something leads you in. And then there is this whole world to be discovered. So I, do you think that the Bogdanovich documentary will lead people to watch to watch Keaton films? I, I think a generation like, for instance, my boy Charlie, who's 11, would see that, would laugh like mad at it, and would be interested enough to want to see more. Whether an audience that has grown up 
with with Jackass, with the kind of slapstick <laughs> comedies we have now, with uh, this idea of kind of comedy having a particular cachet, will still be willing to basically take on something which you can't get away from. It looks archaic because of its age. I mean, it, it, it was one of the things in the Bogdanovich I was very disappointed with was that the quality of the films massively varied. You had some bits of the film which looked like they were shot yesterday, and those mm. were beautifully uh, re... They basically had a lot of money spent on cleaning up what was probably a camera negative, so you just see it's fantastic. Then you'll see another bit of film in which there's nitrate damage across the whole of the image, and you have trouble seeing what Bust is actually doing. Yeah. And I, I put my hand up here, and I'm probably going to get into trouble for it. I really didn't think the music helped. Okay. I felt that the music put it into a kind of museum uh, alongside other impressive artifacts from the past, but artifacts nonetheless, not living, breathing, organic stuff full of blood and muscle and that was going to come at you and rip your head off, which is what I think the music should be trying to do with Keith is to make us aware that that was then, but he is now. This is us. Uh, and I, I, the, 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 I really mean the, uh, the, the, the whole idea of him being, you know, like in a, in a world that wants to kill him. I think our world has been getting closer and closer to busters over the years. So actually, <laughs> he's becoming more relevant, not less, as the years go by. The idea of someone who goes, okay, it's going to be tough out there. I will get by just by my native wit. That is a comedian for the year 2020. I'm going to close with a, I'm going to ask you a trivial question, which I'm sure the, I hope you don't know the answer to, because I'm very pleased with myself for knowing the answer to this. Okay. <laughs> so I always have this thing that weirdly enough in, in all the movies that have been important to me in my life, you know, whether for good or bad, there are weird connections between them. I always have this joke that you can get to the exorcist from anything in three moves. Okay. <laughs> but you can get from Buster Keaton to I spit on your grave in one <laughs> in one move, Neil. <laughs> Do you know what the one move is that links I spit on your grave, probably the most infamous of the video nasties, a film whose reputation, you know, at one point was pretty much up there with Cannibal Holocaust on the top of the DPP's list of films that were going to bring about the end of civilization. Do you know what the link is between I Spit on Your Grave and uh, the work of Buster Keaton? I don't. I Spit on Your Grave stars Buster Keaton's granddaughter. Oh. Camille, Camille Keaton is Buster Keaton's granddaughter. <laughs> I was expecting you to say that it was got a star in it who was in Beach Blanket Babylon or <laughs> one of those nope. 1960s things. Nope. But no. Wow. A, I know. Isn't that lovely? It's fantastic. And I was pity Grandad wasn't around to give her a few tips. Can you imagine if I spit on your grave and got a bit of slapstick in it? Would it have made a huge difference? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neil, listen, thank you so much. It's been great. When's your album out? Uh, I'm still working on it, but I'm releasing the tracks digitally uh, over every, you know, about every two or three weeks over the next few months. So have a look at my Spotify artist page, Neil Brand, and it'll turn up on there. Okay, and obviously you and I were meant to be doing many gigs this year. None of them have happened oh, because of because of one thing and another. And it has been really weird. This is the longest period that we haven't played together. 
I since we started so much, playing mate. together. I really miss yeah. it, Neil. It's a, it's it's breaking my heart. But um, yeah, you know, we will be out. We should have been in Bonesse. We should have been in uh, you know a number of places. But we will, we will do those gigs when all of this is behind us, which I hope is sooner rather than Absolutely. later. Absolutely, we will, and it'll be a celebratory first gig when all this when we come out the other end of all this. It really will. Neil, Neil, thank you ever so much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and uh, we'll have you on the programme soon and hopefully you and I will be out soon making it up as we go along in front of old silent movies. Thanks, Neil. Bless you, Mark. Thanks a lot to you. Cheers. Well, there we go. That's my conversation with the brilliant Neil Brand. You can find out more about Neil by going to www.neilbrand.com. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends. Also, why not visit our Patreon page where you can see video of me and Neil having that conversation, along with a whole bunch of other exclusive video. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.